This podcast is brought to you by the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania. Andy Rockliffe is a genuine American success story many times over. Came out of Penn, co-founded Benchmark Capital. We'll talk about that. Now president and CEO at Wealthfront. He lectures at Stanford, and he has come back to Wharton today. It is a thrill to talk to you, Andy. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Thank you. What an incredible career you've had. Well, you're very kind. Well, I'm also very accurate because I want to come back and talk about some of the things you did back in 1995, some of the names that you identified back then. First, let's talk about you here. What brings you to Wharton today? Well, I'm a member of the University of Pennsylvania Board of Trustees. So we have our trustee meetings this week that last about three days, and that's what I'm here for. Hmm. Let's move right into it. What in the finance industry in general do you like today? What don't you like today? I don't think it doesn't matter what I like or what I don't like. Uh, what I have observed is that the banking industry is one of the two most despised industries in the world. The other one is cable operators. And so as a result, there are a lot of companies that are being formed to try to address especially millennials' dislike for the banking industry. And uh, Wealthfront has actually tried to jump into that as well, trying to serve um, young professionals. Yeah, I want to talk about Wealthfront and exactly what that is. Matter of fact, let's let's switch gears a little bit and talk about you from the very beginning. I mentioned in 1995 you founded Benchmark. You invested in a who's who now of household words, Uber, Twitter, Snapchat, OpenTable, eBay. I think you put in $6.7 million. What are they today? I, I haven't kept track. <laughs> but it was a good investment. It was a very good investment. <laughs> the rest is history. I guess I want to begin there, and I just couldn't wait to talk to you about this. How did that all happen? Well, the founder of eBay had actually started the company as a hobby. He had been an early employee at another one of at a portfolio company of one of our predecessor partnerships, a firm that my partner Bruce Dunleavy and I had been partners at. And uh, after that, uh, it was probably the first e-commerce company, and it was sold to Microsoft. And uh, soon after the sale, Piero Midiar left and ended up joining a company called General Magic, which attracted some of the best technical talent in the history of Silicon Valley. And as a side project, he started up an electronic community that he called eBay for Electronic Bay Area. I didn't and know that. And there were about six or seven different things that you could do in this electronic community, one of which he called Auction Web. And uh, the thing grew so quickly, it was free, that uh, after about three or four months, he had to start charging a listing fee just to afford a bigger server and to afford more bandwidth. And so he reluctantly sent a message to all of his users that he now had to charge a listing fee. And from that point forward, the company was profitable every single month. So he called up one of my partners, Bruce Dunleavy, and, uh, and asked, whether or not Bruce thought he should take an offer from a newspaper chain that had offered to acquire his company. Bruce listened to the description of the business. Bruce was a, uh, is just 
an incredible advisor, which is why Pierre had called him up. Was he with you at Benchmark? At yes, that time? he was one of my yeah. co-founders, and he was a, he was one of my co-partners at uh, at Merrill Pickard, my predecessor. So firm. his ears immediately perked up. Well, he uh, he heard the story of eBay, and he said, "Pierre, why don't you sell us a little bit of your stock to get a little liquidity, and we'll put a little bit more money in, and we'll help you find a CEO because Pierre didn't want to be CEO and." It just kept on growing. So that was where it started. Was that at the point of 6.7, or did that come later? No, that uh, the 6.7 came at that point. That was that point. But it month. was $200,000 in monthly revenue growing 10% a month did and you, profitable. Did you and Bruce anticipate the, the growth that then happened? I don't think anyone could have anticipated the magnitude to which it grew, but we did think that it had a ton of upside because when companies are growing exponentially organically, they tend to continue to grow because the only way you can grow exponentially is through word of mouth. And they had word of mouth. So we thought that it could the uh, at that point in time, they were really only focused on collectibles. We thought it could be applied to many other things. It's funny, a lot of our peers in the industry made fun of us because they would say, Beanie Babies, really? <laughs> you would invest in a company that sells Beanie yeah, Babies? look at the beans now. But we thought that it could be applied to other things, and, and we were fortunate. I would say you were. What was it like in the office when, when it began to bullet up and you knew that the sky was the limit? What was that dynamic, that, that office dynamic like? You know, the more one of our companies succeed, the more we worry <laughs> supposed to get happy. It humbles you. So uh, I remember the day it went public. It was very, very quiet around the office because we all we could think of was this is a milestone along the way. How do we follow this? Just like radio. When you're number one in radio the very next day, hey, you're only as good as your last show. Exactly. You're starting from zero. Exactly. But benchmark is still a who's who. I'm looking at Dropbox and WeWork and Yelp and Zillow and Zipcar. Is there a secret sauce? You've won some awards. You've been called some great names by the Wall Street Journal and some Fortune magazine and some other people. Um, is there a secret sauce? Or yes. You, what is it? The secret sauce is the way that we're organized. A traditional investment partnership is organized in a hierarchical fashion. The thing that we did that was radical was we created an always equal partnership. We called it communist capitalism. <laughs> and so what we decided- You and Bruce or everybody? The five of us. There were five in the beginning. All five of us are now retired. But uh, what we said was that we wanted to have an always equal partnership because uh, we thought that it was a professional service business. You're only as good as the people that comprise the organization. So we wanted the best people. How do you get the best people? What, by giving them an equal stake, because it's an intelligence test. Al, if you were going to join my firm or another firm where you could be a junior partner, you would want to join us because you would be an equal partner. And the only way that that system works is the older partners have to leave when they're no longer willing to go 110%. And we're willing to do that and not continue to take any equity because of the legacy. 
And so you say nice things about me now because <laughs> I was replaced with even better partners who are all equal. It's uh, fantastic. Are they still doing communist capitalism? They still are. <laughs> what was, by the way, we're with Andy Rockliffe, president and CEO of Wealthfront. I want to get to that because there's a lot to talk about there. It's automated investment, but he founded Benchmark is why we're talking about this now. You, by the way, I'd love to know your reaction when Forbes put you on their Midas list. You it's had a, the it's golden... a bullshit list. Really? <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> hey, you know what? This is satellite. He can say that. I can. He can say that. Good for you. So what, what other people on the list, is that how they should take it? Yes. <laughs> Simple as that. How many times have you been on it? Many times. Yeah, yeah. But the rankings, uh, even the people who put the list together will admit that it's not a very good system to try to rank. And you on. say the secret sauce is everybody, you find your five people who you think matter and make them equal. No one is over the other. Correct. Wow. Big lesson. All right. Let's talk more about you. By 2004, you were teaching at Stanford. Why is teaching important to you? You're coming back today. Obviously, you're on the board. Well, I wanted to give back. So when I reached the point that I wanted to retire, actually the beginning of 2005, I raised my hand. I was the second partner at Benchmark to have decided to do that. And uh, I have a life well beyond anything that I ever imagined, and I wanted to give back. Uh, I was only in a position to succeed the way I did because of the schools that I went to. So I became a trustee at Penn back then, and I decided to teach at my graduate school alma mater, Stanford. And uh, my wife and I started a, uh, an innovative cancer research funding initiative. And so, uh, interestingly, Wealthfront was yet another social good and that's what drew me into that. Yes, and I, I, we want to delve into Wealthfront, but I, as I explore you and what makes you tick, you could have done anything. You could sail and go golf, but you're in the classroom. What fulfillment do you get out of that? Why do that? You could be doing anything. Well, I've always liked coaching. Uh, I've coached my kids' sports teams over the years. I had What been sport invited- do you coach? I coached Little League baseball, I coached soccer, I coached girls softball, so I coached a lot of different things. But uh, over the years, I had been a guest lecturer in a number of courses, and I always enjoyed that, and I thought that I might enjoy doing it uh, as a full lecturer. Little did I know how much work it would entail, but, (laughs) but when you see the light bulb go off and the students eyes, it's just an amazing feeling. What do you teach the kids? So I teach a variety of courses on technology entrepreneurship. The one for which I'm best known is a course on product market fit, a term that I coined. Which means? Well, the I am a big believer that the key to success for a technology company has nothing to do with execution. It has to do whether with whether or not the dogs want to eat the dog food. <laughs> if you create something that people desperately want, you can be the worst operator on earth and you will be very, very successful. Conversely, if you're superb at execution but nobody wants what you have, it, you're going to fail. The time is going to fly by. I have so many things I want to get with you. Uh, Andy Rockliffe is with us. By 2007, you and your wife, Deborah, got involved in the cancer fight. Why? Well, my wife lost her best friend to breast cancer. My mother had breast cancer. And we had funded breast cancer research for a number of years, but we had done it almost exclusively through Stanford. And that 
never struck me as the ideal way to do it because limiting it to one institution can't be the best way. A friend of mine had introduced me to an article written by a Fortune uh, journalist and who uh, wrote an article about why the war on cancer was failing. And so we came up with the idea, we had a hypothesis that we tested that actually has worked out that applying the venture capital model to biomedical research might make sense. That in uh, the technology world, all of the great breakthroughs come from young people. And if you look at every field, music, arts, science, uh, mathematics, it's always a young person. In math, your, your, uh, your career is basically over at 25. If you have not invented something by the time you're 25, the odds that you will are very, very low. I would not heard that. And so we all hear about the accomplishments of people when they're older, but the, they actually conceived the idea when they were young. The average age of a Nobel Prize winner in medicine is 36 at the time of their innovation. They might be in their 60s or 70s when they win the prize, but they're only 36 at the time they they conceive the idea. Unfortunately, all the funding goes to older people who are doing incremental research, and almost no funding goes to the young people who are doing high-risk, high-reward research. So what we uh, tested was the idea in partnership with a, a foundation called the Damon Runyon Cancer Research Foundation, that if we gave money to uh, early career uh, investigators doing high-risk, high-reward research, that we were much more likely to find a breakthrough. And like venture capital, the vast majority of them would fail, but the ones who succeeded would succeed big. And I'm really proud to say that one of the first cohorts, one of the first recipients in one of our first cohorts was the person who developed the CRISPR which has revolutionized biomedical research. Wow. Did that, did that come through University of Pennsylvania? No, unfortunately, that yeah. did not. Because CAR-T and everything else did. So that CAR-T came from the CRISPR. It played oh, a really oh, big did. role in, in doing all that, yeah. That, boy, that, that, yeah, so that's the status of some of those funding projects. Let's move in the time we have to where you are now. 2008 came, you came up with Kaching. What was Kaching? Kaching was an idea uh, that I actually got from my participation on the on the Penn uh, uh, Endowment Board. Penn is now the seventh largest endowment, and I'm a big believer that the wow. premier university endowments are the best managed pools of capital in the world. Much of what they do is manual and spreadsheet-based, and I thought if we could automate what uh, the fantastic members of the Penn investment team do, we could democratize access to sophisticated investment advice or investment management. The first instant didn't, instance didn't quite work out, but it pivoted into Wealthfront, and now we have over $24 billion of assets under management. Incredible. Yeah. What is Wealthfront? Wealthfront is now a next-generation banking service that helps young professionals um, manage their savings for the short and long term. So when I say manage their savings for the short and long term, I mean, number one, we offer an FDIC-insured high-yield cash account that currently pays 1.78% with no fees. We offer a best-of-breed automated passive investment solution at the lowest fees in the market and a free financial planning application, all delivered 
via a, a mobile app that's the highest rated financial app in the App Store. So you have access to it at any time. And the, the really neat thing is because we serve a young audience, people who are 25 to 40, they tell us, we pay you not to talk to us. So unlike <laughs> a traditional financial services provider, there are no people involved. Everything can be done through our software. Why not go the traditional route? Why go this automated investment route? Well, the, uh, it enables a far better service. So we can, uh, by automating everything, we have a much lower cost base, which allows us to share the economics with our customers, back to that communist capitalism <laughs> Love point. So, uh, but the only people who are likely to uh, use financial services that are only offered through software are young people. You know, one of our producers, I thought, came up with a great question. Think about your time at Penn. Is The time you spent here years ago, did that eventually lead to making you start Wealthfront? In other words, Absolutely. What was Absolutely. Yeah. How, how did that process work? Well, that's why I give back is because I'm so appreciative of what I learned here. When I was a junior uh, in, God, this was 1979, uh, I, I studied uh, finance and computer science, and I took a course at Wharton that was the first business simulation course. And the professor had built a program that uh, and offered as a course the ability for to break you up into different teams, and each team had 25 decisions to make every week. How much money do you raise? How much do you uh, factory do you want to build? How many units do you want to produce? What do you price them at? How much do you want to spend on advertising? And uh, every week, all of these 25 inputs uh, were entered into the program, and out would come a stock price and full financial statements. And at the end, of, you won by having the highest price at the end of the semester. And about two-thirds of the way through the class, I figured out what the algorithm must be. And so I had this crazy idea about, I wonder if I applied the lessons from this course to investing. And I did it in a simulated way, because I didn't have any money. But I created a, a simulated portfolio. And all of the companies that qualified using the techniques that Professor Mader had taught were technology companies. So I convinced my father to give me a couple thousand dollars to invest on his behalf. And that ended up uh, paying for my graduate school education. So uh, that's what got me interested in investing in technology companies. That's incredible. And with this tech, you can save, plan, invest all in one place. Correct. Um, how are, why is this better than financial institutions traditional? In other words, people are listening right now. They're, yeah, I'm here, but, you know, and then there's a derisive term, robo-something that they refer often to that's, that's not you. Mm -hmm. um, why would they, what's the upside to going from, if somebody is a young person, what was it, 25, 44? 25 to 40. Okay, 25 to 40. Why should they shift over to you? Well, number one, uh, if you're 25 to 40, you are used to doing everything via your phone. And so we're the first people that allow you to do all of the things that you describe to bank and invest and plan all via your phone. And, we're, uh, and people are used to doing things at very low cost or very high interest rates. So uh, that's what we serve. Our clients are millennials who save. 
So a millennial who save is always figuring out what we call money hacks. So unlike uh, their parents, they might put all of their expenses on their credit card, not because they want to borrow on their credit card, but because they want the travel reward points. And then they only pay two bills at the end of the month, their credit card and their rent. So they want to earn more on their money. They want to earn interest on their money. Banks only pay 0.01 or 0.02%. We pay 1.78%. So they're attracted to the fact that we give them more we do it in a simple fashion, and everything is automated. I have two millennial sons who save. Probably good this chance. This is ideal for them. Well, now, what do they do? They, you just said you could do all this on your phone. What message do you want to leave with them if, if they contact you? What do they have to do? They next? don't contact us. What happens? They go either to the uh, App Store, the uh, Apple App Store, or the Google Play Store and download either the iOS or the Android app, or they go to the web and sign up directly. And they know that the investments that are made for their future are being made by Andy Rockliffe and his team? No, it's being made by software that implements the best practices of the last 30 years, and all we do is automate the best practices, and because it's done in software, we can deliver it at much lower cost, and all that matters is the cost. Can I get a window into that? This is my one loan chance to ask. Sure. Back in 2012, I was working in a New York radio station. Long story short, I met at a party with a gentleman who worked in Wall Street. This was 2012, and I was telling him I had an interest in the subject of investing at that point. Would like to someday do an economic show. Didn't know a lot about it, but like to maybe pony up a couple of bucks for the stock market. And he laughed, and he said... You have no idea when you invest in the stock market. We now have software that will, at warp speed, know if I invest this, this is going to happen. If that happens in the market, this is going to happen. At warp speed, this happens in a millionth of a second all across the globe that big investments are happening that way and that you, the little guy, really can't compete because you saw, hey, this guy, this quarter went up for this company. I think I'm going to put a couple of bucks in here. How behind the scenes? Give us a window into how that tech works. Sure. Well, uh Everything we do is backed up by peer-reviewed research. My involvement in the academic community has given me great respect for what goes on here. And it has been uh, proven time and time again that it is almost impossible, even for the professionals, to outperform the market, net of fees. Uh, Our chief investment officer, Bert Malkiel, who's an emeritus professor at Princeton, wrote a groundbreaking book about 45 years ago called A Random Walk Down Wall Street. And in this book, he posited that people would be better off owning a basket of stocks that represent the market versus trying to pick stocks. That became an index fund. So it has been proven time and time again that you are far better off buying an index fund than trying to buy an individual security. By the way, that's even true for professionals. So all we do is buy a diversified portfolio of low-cost index funds on your behalf. We rebalance them because, again, uh, financial research has shown that that leads to a better risk-adjusted outcome. And then finally, we do something called tax loss harvesting to minimize your taxes. And that's something that's been done for decades, but only for very, very wealthy people. And we made it possible so that someone with as little as $500 
could benefit from the kind of tax minimization strategies that only wealthy people have had. I knew our time was going to fly by. I got three quick questions to try to cram in with a minute. Where did you grow up? Northern New Jersey. Northern New Jersey. And what did your dad do and mom do? My dad uh, was an entrepreneur, and he had a very small industrial textile company. How do you, as busy as you are, relax? What's your hobby? Well, I love movies. I watch a lot of television, and I like to play tennis. Oh, good for you. You've probably coached tennis, too, because you have some coaching in the background. And lastly, what excites you? This is a good Matt Datz question, our producer. What excites you most about the future? That uh, the technology world just continues to innovate. It's amazing how much change I've witnessed in the 35 years that I've been in Silicon Valley, and uh and I think you ain't seen nothing yet. And a quick comment on today's situation, this too shall pass. Which situation? The fact that the markets are selling off. I and... never pay attention to the markets. <laughs> There's a quote. Andy Rockliffe, the president and CEO of Wealthfront. It is beyond a privilege to talk to you. Thank you so much for making time My pleasure. For to keep engaged with Wharton Business Daily and other Wharton School shows, visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.